Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, where we've been studying for some time, making our way through this book, and particularly through this first vision that we come to the end of, this vision of Jesus writing letters to these seven major churches in Asia Minor. And uh, we got halfway through the letter last week and had to uh, drop off, and we will pick it up where we left off. Where I only called you two bad names last week, today I'll call you three out of five. I'm calling myself the same ones, but you notice in this text, Jesus says that we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And as John says, that's the bad news, and that's, I said, what we do every week. We talk about how bad the bad news is, and that's why we become so goofy about how great the good news is that this good news is the best news of all, and you can't really appreciate it, and you can't live in the reality of it until you face just how bad the bad news is without Jesus Christ. Last week we said that Jesus uh, came to this church, and this church represents every church, every gathering of God's people or those who are denying Him, and He said, you are wretched, which just means you're unhappy, you're miserable. And you are miserable because you have forgotten that Jesus Christ is the amen. He is the one who identifies himself with the God in Isaiah who claimed, as it said, he is the amen. He is the God of all gods. So Jesus is the God of all gods. And when you forget that Jesus Christ is sovereign and the God of all gods, you become miserably unhappy. And then he says, uh, you are not only wretched, you are unhappy, you're pitiful. And to be pitiful is to be one who is living without the hope of the resurrection. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If, you, uh, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you are of all people most without hope. And uh, he said, when you, when you are either denying that Christ was raised from the dead or you're living in forgetfulness that He was raised from the dead, then you will be those who live without hope. You'll be pitiable. You'll be pitiful. In other words, poor theology leads to a disappointing life. Poor theology leads to a disappointing life, not only for your own experience of it, but for the sake of others too. Poor theology makes its way out into life. And here he then goes on to say there are three other problems with you that you can only find fulfilled in Jesus. You're also poor and blind and naked. Let's look at it as, as it comes to us in this letter beginning in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. 
Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I'm standing at the door. I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. Brothers and sisters, this is the very Word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open our eyes to see beautiful things in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. Right after World War II, the world was left with many orphans, many homeless children or children separated from their parents if they were not killed. So with compassion, they began to gather up these homeless children and put them into large settlement camps, and they tried to provide everything necessary for their comfort, secure surroundings and and people to attend to their medical needs. They made comfortable beds for them. Uh, They attended to their health concerns, and they gave them food, plenty of food. Regardless of all of these comforts that they gave them, these creaturely comforts, the children still slept only fitfully at night. They had night terrors or they couldn't go to sleep, they couldn't drift off. And uh, finally, an American psychologist, an, an army psychologist, figured out what needed to be done. Every night as the children were going to bed, they would give each child a slice of bread. And they say, you just, we just want you to hold on to it. If you want to eat it, you can eat it. We'll give you another one. If you don't eat it, it's okay. You'll have more food in the morning. But we're just giving you a slice of bread to hold on to in the middle of the night. The children began to sleep more peacefully because they had this food to hold. They finally figured out that each child was terrified of starving again. They had been deprived, and they were afraid of returning to that condition. There is a reason that Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life, the bread of life who has come down from heaven, the bread of God which has come to feed the world, the bread of life, he says, that if you eat, you will never hunger. Jesus says, I have come and I remain one who so fulfills your every need that you will never, ever be in want. Not just your spiritual need, not just your, na- your need for forgiveness of sin, but I have come to unite your body to mine so that I could provide for your every creaturely need. It may not be the abundance you want. It may not be the timing you want. But the righteous will never be seen begging for bread. And so the solution, not just to spiritual, emotional needs, as if you're wretched or you're pitiful, but the solution even to your physiologic needs is the same. It's to come to the Christ of the gospel. 
And so here are some of these very creaturely needs. He says, because of your, your poor theology, you have become poor. Now, let me tell you, I'm going to cover each of these points. I'm going to do four C's so you can track with me. I'm going to talk about the connotation of the word. I'm going to talk about the context in Laodicea. I'm going to talk about the characteristic that they are denying of Christ or forgetting about Christ. And I'm going to talk about the cure as it comes in the gospel. So the connotation of this word poor, that is the way it's seen, the way it's understood in Scripture, is that of insecurity. Poverty has to do with insecurity. It has to do with a broken relationship of some kind. Sometimes it is a broken relationship with the creation. So you are sick and you can't work or you are prevented from working because of your race or because of your background or because of your handicap or there's just not work to be found or the money is not meeting the uh, surprising needs that have come to you. There is a breakdown in your relationship with the creation. It is supposed to provide for you so that you can provide for yourself. And there's a broken relationship, and when there's a broken relationship with the cre creation, we call that material poverty. But that's not the only kind of poverty that is, that is found in Scripture. There's also uh, poverty of spirit when your relationship is broken or becomes insecure in yourself. You are poor in spirit. You may be depressed. You may have a, a mental disease. You may have uh, some anxiety disorder. That's poverty of spirit. Then you may be relationally poor. You have a broken relationship with other people. And then you may be spiritually poor. You have a poor, you have a broken relationship with God. There are only those kinds of four kinds of poverty. But the Bible addresses all of them, and the Bible says Jesus is the answer to all of them. Now, what kind of poverty do you think is in view here in Laodicea? In some other churches we've studied, it is a problem of material poverty. In this church, it can't be a problem of material poverty because even they recognize that they're rich. You know, nobody says that he's rich unless he's really, really rich. And uh, so here, these Laodiceans are rich. They're so rich that uh, they had a man named Hero who gave a lot of money to the city. He had a city named after him across the river called Hierapolis. That's the place from which they got their water, remember? And it came from those therapeutic hot pools, arrived lukewarm, and it was, it was an emetic. It, it made you sick to your stomach when you drank. You had to cool it. You had to treat it. And it left these beautiful calcium deposits or travertine uh, cav uh, uh, cliffs on the other side. Th that's the, that was named after that rich man who was a resident in Laodicea. There was another family so rich that even the Roman governors appointed them and called them royalty. So rich that when their city was, was destroyed with an earthquake, they said, Rome, we don't need your money. We can handle it from here. And they rebuilt their city, and not just up to the standard that it had been before, but surpassing it so that it became a jewel of the region. They were filthy rich. They had more than they needed. They were just like you, just like Americans. And they said, we're rich. We have these 
material supplies. We have this stuff, and so it must mean that everything else is going well with us. Well, the connotation of poverty is that, and then that's the context. And so what is the characteristic? That these rich people are denying about Christ. Because here's something else I think we can understand from this text, which is universally true. That the smarter somebody is, the more ability somebody has, the wealthier somebody has, the more, the more insecure they are. At least that's been my observation. The more they have, the more they're afraid they're going to lose it. And so Jesus says, what's the problem? Because you are trusting in your retirement, trusting in what you're saving up, trusting in what you can supply for yourself, you have become insecure. And you've become insecure because you're denying that Jesus is the ruler of all creation. You see that? For all of these five negative characteristic, characteristics, there is a positive attribute from Christ that solves the problem. You are poor in the eyes of God. You are insecure, fretting over how you're, going to, how you're going to preserve what you have, how you're going to provide for yourself. You have become this way. You have chased that money, that security, because you've forgotten that Jesus Christ is the ruler of creation. That Jesus Christ is the one who makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust. That Jesus Christ is the sovereign God, is the one who distributes as he does, and the one who takes it back. You have forgotten that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the ruler. And while you're secure one day, all it takes is for the Chinese to China to downgrade their currency a little bit, lower the price of oil somewhere else in the world. Somebody just to be afraid of something, and you're not so secure anymore. It exposes where you have put your trust the degree to which you become anxious about the market. Jesus said, you've forgotten that I'm the ruler. What do you do? You buy gold. <laughs> the problem is you can't buy gold on TV anymore because it's, it's tanked and nobody's selling it anymore. But Jesus said, buy gold. Jesus said, buy gold of a different kind, the gold of faith. Faith only does one thing. Faith only receives what Christ offers. Faith grabs the slice of bread. And Jesus said, when you, when, no matter how, what you're anxious about, you're anxious about the Dow, you're anxious about your health, you're anxious about that person intimidating, you're anxious about your job, whatever your anxiety, whatever your insecurity, you come to me. You grab hold of me. You say, I've forgotten that you're the ruler of creation. Would you correct my perspective? And when you do, he said, that bond that holds you with Jesus called faith, Peter says that the hotter, the more intense, the more pressured your situation becomes, the brighter and shinier your faith comes forth. <clears throat> comes forth shining as gold. Turn up the suffering. Turn up the pressure. Turn up the refining fires. It doesn't matter. Faith is not going to be dulled. 
your security in Christ will become the more manifest. In fact, God does that on occasion. How else is he going to convince the world that he's the ruler of creation unless he takes some things from you every now and then and people say, oh, he still loves Jesus even though he lost his job. Still loves Jesus even though his health is compromised. Still loves Jesus though he lost a million dollars in the stock market last week. There must be a gold, there must be a faith that is, that is stronger than gold. You know, I remember just this morning while I was preaching, I remember two men, one in the previous congregation, one in the other congregation, who died with absolutely nothing, not a penny, not even the clothes on their backs, all of them provided for them. No health insurance, no, no money, no money in the bank, no retirement, didn't even own the roof over their head. And in both cases, I had to wait in line to go into their hospital room or their or their hospice bed, I had to wait in line behind other people seeking some time with them just to get a blessing, just to hear them, hear that man pray for them. What made them different? Why did their faith, why, what was the secret of the value of their faith that had nothing to do with dollars, that had everything to do with how clearly you could see Jesus in their life? You're poor. You may be rich with stuff, but unless Christ is foremost in your life, you're really poor. The second problem we have with when our theology is not focused on Christ is that we're blind. What's the connotation? What's the word mean? In, in Scripture, blindness is naivete. Sometimes it's literal blindness. People born blind have physical blindness. But at other times, it's, it's naivete. That is, it's a failure to see the real world. That's the context here. You see, these people looked around at what they thought was the real world. They thought the real world was how, much, how many chariots you have in your garage or how many how many horses you have or how much gold you have. They thought that was the real world. But the, the, the accounting firm from heaven said, no, that's not the real world. You're poor. They were delusional because they did not see the world as it truly is, and it is only truly the way it is as Jesus sees it. So what characteristic are they denying? What characteristic are they failing to acknowledge that he is, look at it, He's not only the faithful witness and the amen, he's the true witness. It's failing to see true reality, the way the world really, really is, not just the way it appears. I uh, once served on a college board for a number of years, for many years, actually, and I was a part of the executive committee of that board and on one occasion, we had a very thorny employment issue to deal with. Somebody had to be terminated because of the disastrous choices he was making at work, in his personal life, in his public life. He was melting down in every direction, and his, his, he was becoming toxic to the organization itself. And so in this room, a few uh, uh, men, and uh, they were you know, really high-level, smart, 
and experienced men, and then I was in there too. And uh, one of these guys was a, a genius, a theological genius and a pastor. And uh, then another guy was a, a very experienced corporate lawyer and a partner in his firm, senior partner. And then there were uh, titans of industry and so forth. And, and uh, so they said, uh, we've got to deal with this problem. It's, it's, it's poisoning the whole culture. And so the lawyer said, well, here's what you do. You go and you say, it's not working out. You say just that. That's all you say. It's not working out. And then you say, pack up your desk and we'll escort you to the door. That's what you do. The theologian said, no, that's not what you do. This man's life is melting down. He's a brother in Christ. But he needs to have we need to help him with some vocational counseling. We need to help him find a job that will provide his family's needs. They're going to be left destitute if not. Then we need to give him some psychological counseling because he's, he's got this problem where he's not seeing reality. He doesn't know how to deal with people. And then we've got to get him some counseling for his marriage. He's going to lose his marriage. So we've got to do that. And he'll need at least six months to get started with that. So we've got to give him six months of severance. The lawyer said, well, that's not the way we do it in the real world. Theologian said, that is the way you do it in the real world. The lawyer said, what real world are you living in? The theologian said, I'm living in the real, real world, and you're living in the delusional world, because the real world that I'm living in is superintended by God. It's uh, mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of providence is governed by His holy angels. That's the real world. And the lawyer, a godly man, shook his head like he was getting the cobwebs out and said, you're right. For a while, I'd forgotten the real world. That is the real world. The real world is not just the new abnormal. The real world is the way God defines it as the ruler of creation, as the true witness. What's the cure for blindness? cure for blindness is, you guessed it, the gospel. It's called a salve here. And this salve applied to Christ. Remember, I want you to remember the story. Don't turn there, but John 9, there's a man that the disciples come across, and uh, he's been blind all of his life. And the, and the disciples are still mixed up in their theology, this, uh, this syncretistic worldview, and they say, you know, there's only one of two reasons this man is blind. Either he sinned in a previous life or his parents sinned before he was born. That's why he's blind. So they said, we'll find out from Jesus. Who sinned, this man or his, or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. Not that, Jesus, not that Jesus was saying none of them had ever sinned. Of course they had. But that's not the explanation for his blindness. The reason he's blind is so that I would be glorified as the healer of the blind. Jesus healed his eyes physically, but he's demonstrating in that physical healing that he's the one who heals the spiritual blindness that occurs when people begin to think what they're looking at, just the circumstances, just what that appears to be wise to them is the real world. He heals their vision. And then they begin to look at all of life, every detail of life, every setback, every disease, every war, every every battle, every opposition, they see it not as something that's just contained in this world and in this history, but they say, this is something that had to be for God's glory. 
And I want to see how Jesus is going to get the glory from this. There are ones who see through these circumstances to the throne in heaven as it's going to be unpacked to us in chapter 4. Third problem that comes from bad theology is that you're naked. Nakedness in the Bible, the connotation is shame, judgment. Or specifically, it's to be unknown by the Christ of judgment and therefore judged and condemned to hell. To be naked is to be unknown by Christ at the judgment day and therefore to be condemned to hell. What's the context? The context is that these in Laodicea were at a central, at, 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 uh, at the center of a, of a textile industry that was one of their explanations for success. They produced a glossy black wool. And they were famous for it. It was stylish. They told everybody in Laodicea, this is what you're supposed to wear. They told everybody around the world they wanted to buy this stuff. It was, it was impressive. And so they thought that's what it means to be clothed. To be clothed is to blend in. To be clothed is to be accepted. To be clothed is to be known and admired by the people around you. Isn't that the way it happens here? Every year, a group of people, a, group of, a small group of people in New York or Paris tell us what's going to be stylish. They even tell us what the color of the year is. And then you go out like cattle, and we, we go out and we buy it. No matter how ugly it is, somebody's told us it's stylish. So, you know, if I'd kept that stuff I had in the 70s and 80s, it would be stylish today. So what I took 10 years ago to the Salvation Army has just now been shipped over to Abercrombie & Fitch, and they sell it for 10 times as much. Jesus said, so what if everybody else thinks you're stylish? I say you're naked. I say that you've continued to live in that way, just conforming to the world, then I, by the time you get to heaven, I won't know you. Now, follow this. Jesus says, what's, what's the characteristic that they've denied? Nakedness is to be unknown, right, and, and destined for judgment. The context is this, this stylishness in Laodicea. The characteristic that they're denying is Jesus' faithfulness. That's the remaining characteristic, that he is faithful, and he calls people to be faithful, that is, to live according to the Scriptures. So when the Bible talks about being clothed, what clothes do you put on to be clothed in Jesus' sight? The clothes that Jesus says to put on are specifically, specifically, Paul says, I want you to be clothed with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Sound familiar? It's the fruit of the Spirit. That is, when you embrace me and I move into you by the Holy Spirit, you start living like I lived. You start looking like me. It's not just going to church a lot. It's not just uh, feeding the hungry at the soup kitchen. It is this. This is the telltale sign that you belong to me, that I'm living in you. You're compassionate, and you're gentle, and you're kind, and you're humble, and you're patient. 
When you get to heaven, Jesus says, uh, come up here. Let's see who you are. Are you a sheep or a goat? And so a group of people comes up and they said, look, this is what we do. We travel all over the world. We were traveling evangelists. We worked miracles and so forth. And he says, I've never known you. Because you were never compassionate, you're never gentle, you're never patient, you're never kind, you're never humble. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. We know your name, but I don't know you. Hell has been prepared for you. If I had known you, you would have been living like me. So he turns to the others. And he says, why should I let you into my heaven? And the answer is, <laughs> we don't deserve to be in heaven. The only thing we've done in this life is to embrace Christ. He says, exactly. And because you've embraced me, this is what I've seen you doing. This is what you've been doing spontaneously. You show compassion. You visit the sick. You visit the... the you, you provide clothes for the poor. You, you, you visit the prisoner. You, you, you show compassion and gentleness and kindness and humility. You demonstrated that I was living through you. A few weeks ago, I talked to a, a woman, who, a young woman who grew up in this church, and she told me that uh, many years ago, uh, her mother had a stillborn child. Her mother didn't want to have another child. She was afraid to, and there was a godly woman in this church who uh, urged her to trust in God and have another child. She said, the reason I'm here is because of that woman. I went and told that woman. I said, do you know that she says that the reason she's here is because of you? She said, I, I, don't, understand. I don't know what she's talking about. All I did was pray for her. All I did was listen to her. All I did was hold her hand when she lost a baby. She didn't take a course on compassion. She allowed Jesus' life to show compassion and gentleness and kindness and it bore fruit. That's what Jesus means when he says, you will put on the white robes of righteousness. How do you get these things? How do you get this clothing? I can tell you because I've read the end of the book, the end of Revelation. There's a wedding party there. It's going to be called the wedding supper of the Lamb. And Jesus said, I, John said, I saw all the people come and they were all dressed appropriately for the wedding. And they, were, they had on fine linen bright and clean, it was given them to wear. And by the way, he said, the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. The righteous acts of the saints is the fine linen. The fine linen is given us to wear. There's only way you can, one way you can get it. It's not by faking kindness, not by faking compassion, it's to go back to Christ and say, I can't be any of this stuff on my own. You've got to live through me. Well, Jesus is the one who said, like we said last week, he's knocking at the door, knocking at the door of your heart. He's speaking in that still, small voice that's driving you crazy. And he said, if you'll open the door, you won't believe what I'm going to do for you. You open the door, I'll come in and eat with you. We'll be friends. You open the door... I'll not just make you a friend, I'm going to make you a king, a queen. You're going to be seated on a throne and rule with me. That's the way grace is. It's always so much infinite, it's infinitely more 
than your sin and deprivation. If you hear the voice, you must respond to it. Isaac Haapi is a Hawaiian man who transferred to Washington, D.C. to become a, become a law enforcement officer. On September 11, that tragic day in our nation's history, he heard on the radio that, uh, that, that we had been attacked and, and that specifically a, a plane had flown to the side of the Pentagon. He was near the Pentagon, and even though he was off duty, he drove straight there. He drove onto the property. He jumped out of his car. He ran to the danger, smoke's billowing out of the side of the Pentagon. He rushes in. He starts seeing people ambling around, overcome by smoke. He, he throws them out. He carries them out. He drags them out. And when he got all of those, he went in deeper. And fighting the, the toxic fumes, he started yelling, if you can hear my voice, come to me. If you can hear my voice, crawl to me. A man named Warner heard his voice. He thought, I'm near death. This is a guardian angel. He has a group of people with him. This is a guardian angel. He's calling me to heaven. And so he starts crawling. He starts crawling. And when he gets there, he looks up, and it's a six-foot-three, 300-pound Hawaiian. And he said, I didn't know guardian angels were this big. <laughs> he said, you've come to save me. He drags him out. He drags out the others who surely would have been dead had they not come to his voice. That knocking on the door of your heart, that still small voice that you hear, it's Jesus who doesn't want you to be wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's only because he loves you that he reproves you this morning disciplines and says, repent and come to me, and you'll have life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, open our eyes. Some of us think we see. Some of us think we're rich. Some of us think we're clothed. We're poor, blind, and naked. Would you heal us? with the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.